0: Before we hear from the word of the Lord, let us come before our merciful God and ask for his guidance. Our Father, you are the Lord who is faithful in all your words and kind in all your works. You uphold all who are falling and raise all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. So we look to you now to receive the fruit of your word. We ask you to open your hand and satisfy our desire to know you and be known by you. Uphold us by your word and spirit for we are falling. Raise us up with Christ for we are bowed down. And in your light, let us see light now. We ask these things in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord, from John chapter 14, verses 25 to 31. Our Lord Jesus is speaking to His disciples on the night when He's to be betrayed. This is his farewell discourse. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise. Let us go from here. For the second time in his farewell discourse, Jesus tells his disciples let not your hearts be troubled. And here he adds, neither let them be afraid. Now they have just shared their last supper together. Judas has left to betray Jesus. And in a few hours, Jesus will be arrested, the disciples will scatter, Peter will deny ever knowing Jesus, and Jesus will be crucified. So these are troubling and frightening circumstances. And yet the Lord doesn't want His disciples to be troubled. He doesn't want them to be afraid. Instead, He wants to promote their faith. Verse 29, I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. And he wants to produce Joy. Verse 28 If you loved me, you would have rejoiced. And he wants to provide peace. Verse 27 Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Promote faith, produce joy, and provide peace. That's the purpose of Jesus' farewell discourse to his disciples, which begins at the end of chapter 13 and goes to the end of chapter 16. He knows they're troubled. He knows they're afraid. And he knows that the next few hours and days are only going to increase that trouble and fear. So because he deeply loves them, he gives them what they need more than anything else. And that is his word. Oh, what a gracious gift the word of God is to troubled and frightened souls. Jesus speaks to prepare, preserve, and protect His disciples then and in all ages as they inevitably face troubling and frightening circumstances. Which means these words are for you now if you will listen and believe. And as Jesus speaks, He provides three Bullets to load your gun with that you can fire into the heart of your doubts and your fears. The first promotes faith, the second produces joy, and the third provides peace. So, number one, Christ's holy emissary came to continue Christ's holy ministry. Jesus has been clear. He is leaving. He will leave through His death and then He will leave again through His ascension. But he has promised to send his disciples another helper, another advocate who will be with them as they remain on the earth. And in verse 26 we learn this helper is the Holy Spirit and he is coming to continue Christ's ministry in light of Christ's completed work. Now the work that Christ will complete during His earthly ministry is His atoning work on the cross. He has come to lay down His life for the sheep to save them from their sins. He will finish that work. The Spirit does not add to it, but the Spirit will now apply it. Still, there are other aspects of Christ's ministry that the Holy Spirit does continue. For as the Father sent the Son in his name, as Jesus says in John five forty-three, meaning that the Father sends the Son to be his emissary, his witness, his representative, so now the Father is sending the Holy Spirit in the Son's name, as you see in verse twenty-six. The Spirit is coming to be the Son's emissary, his witness, his representative. The son was sent to say and do all that he heard and saw from his father. The spirit is sent to do the same with respect to the son. So Jesus will say in John 16, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit's ministry stands in total continuity with the Son's ministry. Both are sent by and come from the Father. Jesus says He is the truth. The Spirit is the Spirit of truth. Jesus taught His disciples. The Spirit teaches them further. Jesus is God's witness. The Spirit is God's witness. The world failed to know and receive Jesus. The world will fail to know and receive the Spirit. So the Spirit comes to take and carry on what belongs to Jesus. So the Spirit mediates Christ's ongoing presence with his disciples, and he extends Christ's ongoing ministry to them. This is one reason Paul calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Christ in Romans 8, 9. Jesus was conceived by the Spirit. He received the full measure of the Spirit. The Spirit belongs to Him. And now He has been commissioned to send the Spirit to continue His ministry on earth. And one way the Spirit will continue Christ's ministry is by teaching Christ's disciples, helping them remember and understand what Christ had taught them. So when they are sent out to be Christ's witnesses, they will have with them Christ's chief witness, the Holy Spirit guiding them every step of the way. This promise promoted the disciples' faith in Jesus. They are reassured, as he says back in verse 18, he is not leaving them as orphans. He will come to them. Yes, in his resurrection, but then ultimately by the sending of His Holy Spirit, they will still have their Lord with them even after He ascends. This also promoted their faith as they were sent out to witness to Christ. For Christ promises that they will have the Spirit who will preserve their memory and help them better understand all that Jesus had said and done. They would not forget They wouldn't misremember, they wouldn't misunderstand, for they had the Holy Spirit as their new teacher, and He was coming to teach them, but not to teach them anything new. The Spirit is not innovative. He did not come to add to Christ's teaching, He came to help the disciples remember and better understand Christ's teaching. John mentions multiple times in his gospel that the disciples didn't always understand what Jesus was saying and doing at the time. But they came to understand later in light of the cross and the resurrection and in light of the Spirit's illuminating ministry. Now this same promise should also promote your faith in Christ and in His Word. For it means that even though you can't see Jesus and He is reigning at the right hand of the Father, He is still with you. If you have the Spirit of Christ, you have Christ with you wherever you go. His presence was limited to some degree while He is physically on earth. Now that He is in heaven, He sends His Spirit. It is not limited in any way. So that is good. But this should also promote your faith in Christ's Word because it means you can unwaveringly trust what you read in your Bible and you can have hope to understand it. For the Holy Spirit's ministry means the faith that was passed down from Christ to the apostles and written down in the Holy Scriptures is absolutely trustworthy. Of those who wrote the Old Testament, Peter says in Second Peter one twenty one, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the Old Testament is clearly understood to be the ultimate fruit of the Spirit's ministry. And what is Jesus saying in His farewell discourse? He is sending His same Spirit to His apostles, to those who will... Primarily write the New Testament Scriptures. And He will do the same for them. So Paul can say in Second Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God. The Bible from beginning to end is God's Word because it is ultimately produced by God's Spirit. So it's encouraging to know the apostles were eyewitnesses of Christ. But even eyewitnesses can forget, they can misremember. Throughout the gospel accounts, the disciples are often portrayed as confused or clueless. So it would be fair to ask, how do I know I can trust what they wrote down? For even in the best circumstances, the human mind and memory is is far from perfect, how often do you walk out the door and realize, I have no idea where I put my keys or my phone or my shoes. And John is writing his gospel account decades after the events took place. And yet, when you read what John writes, the details are breathtaking. John remembers exactly how Jesus tied the towel around His waist before He washed His disciples' feet. He remembers how 50 years ago, exactly how they were arranged around the table. He remembers exactly what kind of ointment Mary used to anoint Jesus' feet. And yes, this confirms John is an eyewitness of these events, but it also confirms the promise of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, your ultimate confidence in the apostles' testimony is not in their power of memory. It is in the reliability of Christ to keep his promise and the reliability and power of the Holy Spirit to do as he was sent to do. The production of the Bible was a human process, but it was also a supernatural process. Real men wrote in their, re, in their right minds, but they were infallibly guarded and guided by the Holy Spirit. So when there are questions today about whether there are mistakes in the Bible, is inerrancy or infallibility just a modern construction that we've imposed on Scripture? The question is not about the reliability of humans. The question is about the reliability of God. Did Christ keep His promise or not? Does the Holy Spirit have the power to do with what He was sent to do or not? This is not a trivial question. Christ's holy emissary came to continue Christ's holy ministry and His work ought to promote your faith in Christ and in His infallible Word. Number two. Christ's heavenly Father led him to his former glory in heaven. Christ's heavenly Father led him to his former glory in heaven. The ministry of the Spirit ought to promote faith in you. The return of the Son to his Father ought to produce joy in you. Jesus previously told his disciples, I'm going away, but I'm going to come back. He reminds them of this, but then he adds, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father for the Father is greater than I. If they love Jesus, they would rejoice that he is returning to his Father. Now, it's not wrong For the disciples to be sad that Jesus is leaving. When you love somebody, you miss them. You mourn if they move away or die. My wife Leandra is the oldest of five. And the next oldest is her sister Alicia. Many of you know Tyler and Alicia Ernst. You will not find many sisters as close as Leandra and Alicia. I often kid, I'm very thankful that one is brunette and one is blonde because I would have a hard time telling the difference. But I once asked Leandra, in a moment I think just of low self-esteem, and I was hoping she would build me up, Leandra, who's your best friend? I expected, you are, sweet Neil. Without hesitation, Alicia So husbands, never ask your wife that question. It may not turn out how you hope. So it is not surprising that when Alicia and her family moved over Christmas vacation from Lansing, which is just a little over an hour away from us, all the way to Oregon, which we will never get to because we have three kids and they do not travel, Leandra was deeply sad. I'll never forget the tears and the sorrows as they hugged goodbye. And it's not even a permanent goodbye. However, when you love someone, you also rejoice when something good happens to them. Even if it's painful for you. So even though Leandra was deeply sad to see her sister go, she also rejoiced because she knew they were doing what was best for their family. They're moving to a part of the country where you actually see the sun, I hear, and it's great. It's great. If you love God, you will rejoice in what brings God joy, even if it involves your suffering. D.A. Carson writes, Christians have been far more alert to their own griefs and sorrows than to the things that bring their master joy. Does God's joy make you Rejoice. Does Christ's exaltation make you glad regardless of your circumstances? It's not wrong to grieve. It is not wrong to lament and be sorrowful when things are not going well. But can you have joy in the midst of it knowing that Christ is rejoicing in His rightful place? Jesus has comforted his disciples telling them that his going will be for their good and he'll make that point again later but here he says that his going will be good for him because he will return to the father he adores and he will return to his former glory. Paul explains in Philippians 2 that Jesus Willingly humbled Himself as the Son took on human flesh in His incarnation. He entered into a state of humiliation. In a sense, He set aside His glory. Not ceasing to be God, but not coming in the full display of His divine glory. He leaves His throne and takes the form of a servant. But through the cross, In the resurrection and the ascension, the Father would exalt Christ once again. He would return to the glory He had with the Father before the world existed. As Jesus will pray in John 17, 6. I believe this is the implication of what Jesus says in verse 28. For the Father is greater than I. He's not saying the Father is greater in essence. Jesus has been abundantly clear. He and the Father are one. Jesus is truly God. Neither is he implying, as some argue, that there is an eternal functional subordination of the Son to the Father. Yes, there is an order in the Trinity but it goes too far to speak of an essential and eternal subordination of persons within the Trinity. What he means is that the Son willingly humbled himself in his incarnation, coming as a suffering servant, and in this sense the Father is greater than him now. But the Father will glorify and exalt Christ so that the Son will return to his former glory with the Father. So you can think of Jesus' ministry in two parts. From his conception to the cross is his ministry of humiliation, all of his suffering. But then through the cross, the resurrection and the ascension, he enters into his eternal ministry of exaltation. So he will forever be the incarnate Lord. The Father will always be greater than his humanity, but he will no longer be so in a state of humiliation. He will be so in a state of exaltation. And this ought to give you joy because it gives Jesus joy. Can you rejoice in every circumstance knowing the one you love is back with the one he loves and, is, and is enjoying his rightful glory with the Father. If you love him, you will find joy in his joy, even in your sorrow. This is one way the Christian is, as Paul says, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Christ's heavenly Father led him to his former glory in heaven. The Son is exalted and joyfully reigns, and this ought to produce joy in those who love him above all else. Number three, Christ's peace is your possession. The Spirit's ministry promotes faith. The Son's exaltation produces joy. But Christ also provides the Christian with the gift of His peace. Verse 27, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Oh, how we long for peace, don't we? And often find it elusive. Holding on to a sense of peace can feel like gripping water. It's always just seeping through the cracks. But this is because we tend to think of peace in worldly terms. But the Christian's peace is not the peace of the world. For the world can speak peace, it can recognize peace, but it cannot create it, and it cannot sustain it. The world can speak peace, but it cannot create it when it is not there. So you think of the false prophets in Jeremiah's day who would cry out, peace, peace, when there was no peace, but saying it didn't make it so. And you might recognize and feel peaceful when your circumstances are, are calm just as you can observe and see that the water is quiet and still as you are in a fishing boat and it makes you feel quiet and still in your soul. But what about when the clouds darken? What about when the winds howl? What about when the, winds, when the waves begin to rise Peace that is dependent on circumstances is temporary and it is uncontrollable. But this is not the peace Jesus gives to his disciples. It is not as the world gives. The peace Jesus gives is eternal, it is effectual, and it is untouchable because it is his peace. It's not a mere declaration. It's not dependent on fickle circumstances. It is a peace founded upon an unchangeable reality because it is the peace of an unchangeable person. If you are a Christian, you do not possess the peace of a changing world. You possess the peace of the unchangeable Christ. And to possess Christ's peace first means you possess eternal, effectual, and untouchable peace with God Himself. For when you are united to Christ by faith, your status before and relationship with God is the very same as Christ's. This means you never stand before God as one condemned, and your relationship with God is never marked by wrath, hatred, or animosity. Jesus says in verses 30 and 31, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. The ruler of this world is just one way to refer to the devil. He is coming in the sense that he has now possessed Judas. the, The events and circumstances are in place for Christ to be arrested and crucified. So, Satan is working to kill the son. But notice two things. First, the devil is called a ruler and he is working to kill Jesus, but he is not the primary cause of the crucifixion. Jesus does not go to the cross because the devil is in charge and he has to submit to him. Jesus goes to the cross because his father is in charge and he always lovingly does what his father tells him to do. So you notice, even as Satan possesses Judas after the foot washing, Judas does not get up and go to betray Jesus until Jesus tells Judas he can go. He says, you go now and do what you intend to do. Jesus is in control the whole time. The Father is in control the whole time. Second, the devil does not command Jesus because he has absolutely no claim on Jesus. He cannot accuse or condemn Jesus because Jesus is without sin. And Paul says the sting of, of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But Jesus has no sin, so there is no sting. Jesus has no sin, so there is no power to condemn him. If the devil points to the law, all he's going to point out is Jesus' righteousness. Death and the devil have no claim on the sinless Savior. The great accuser cannot accuse him, and the great killer cannot kill him. And yet, Jesus willingly lays down His righteous life and takes upon Himself the sin of His people, paying the penalty of their sin, suffering their condemnation, bearing the Father's just wrath which they deserved. So Paul says in Second Corinthians 5.21, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, So that in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. And this means that everyone who puts their trust in Jesus alone for salvation no longer stands, not even for a second, before the Father is one condemned. Christ takes your condemnation. You stand before God as Christ stands before God. And so Paul can say without equivocation in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you hear that? It does not matter what you have done, how many times you have done it, or how perverse your heart is, the very second you place your faith in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, all of your guilt, shame, and condemnation is gone for all eternity. It doesn't come and go. No condemnation. And if you are not condemned before God, then you have peace with God And so Paul says again in Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And since it is Christ's peace, it is eternal, it is effectual, and it is untouchable. The other side of the coin is that you stand before God as one who is righteous, and you share a relationship with Him that is always marked by joy, delight, and love. For just as Jesus is always pleasing to his Father, so now are you. Jesus says, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. The Father himself declares of Jesus, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And here is the amazing news of the gospel. When you are in Christ, that declaration becomes true of you. As the Father loves the Son, so He loves you. That's amazing. And this means, Christian, that the devil has no claim on you. Do not listen to Him. Do not serve Him. He is not your master. He cannot accuse you anymore. But you say, I still have sinned. Yes, but it is forgiven sin. It is sin that has been paid for by the blood of Jesus. And so though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool, Isaiah 118. Psalm 103 verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. The Lord says in Hebrews 8.12, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. So when the devil shows you the law, you point to Christ's fulfillment of the law. And when the devil points to the penalty of your sin, you point right to the cross. That's the answer. It's the only answer. The promise for those who are in Christ is that as you confess your sins, you live every day in the forgiveness and peace that Christ has purchased for you on the cross. John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So never think for a second that when we confess our sins here on Sunday morning that that's some morbid introspection. That is an act of joy to confess Confess your sins and enter into the forgiveness that is yours in Jesus Christ. So when the devil accuses you, when your own heart seeks to condemn you, let it lead you to confession if necessary, but never let it lead you to a sense of condemnation, for that doesn't exist for you anymore. You possess the peace of Christ. And therefore you possess eternal, effectual, and untouchable peace with God. It also means you possess eternal, effectual, untouchable peace in the world. Your peace in the world is not circumstantial. You couldn't have peace in the world if it was circumstantial. For Jesus will be very clear later in John chapter 16, verse 33. In the world, you will have tribulation. That's just a fancy word for things won't go very well. In the world, you will have tribulation. So how can you have peace in the world if you have tribulation in the world? Well, it's because you're in the world, but your peace isn't in the world. Jesus also says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. You have tribulation in the world, but you have peace in Christ, and he has overcome the world. Christian peace is not circumstantial peace, which means, and this is so crucial to understand, Christian peace is not the absence of conflict and pain. Or sorrow. That's how we often think of it. I'm at peace if I don't have any of those other things going on in my life. But that's not what it means. Christian peace is the presence of the conquering Christ in the midst of all of those things. So think of Jesus. He is always at perfect peace. He's always overcoming the world. And he experienced a lot of conflict. John will say of Jesus himself, two times, he was troubled. So the presence of trouble and troubled feelings is not the absence of peace. It wasn't for Jesus and it isn't for you. Christian peace is the presence of an objective reality, even in the face of subjective trouble and sorrow. So just as the Christian can be sorrowful yet always rejoicing, the Christian can be troubled yet always at peace. This is why I think Paul says that Christian peace is a peace that surpasses all understanding. The world just doesn't get it. It surpasses human understanding because it's not the peace of man dependent on circumstances. It's the peace of God regardless of circumstances. So the world might look at your circumstances and say, you have no peace. You live in a nation of political chaos. Have you heard of the coronavirus? Your marriage is in trouble. Your kids are struggling. You are crippled by fear and depression. There is no way you have peace. Yet the Christian can look at those same circumstances and say, that is all true. And then immediately look to Christ and say, I beg to differ though, I have peace. It's not my circumstances. It's my Christ. But this still elicits the question, how do you persevere in the peace that you possess? In other words, how do you experience the reality of Christ's peace in you? For you have it, but if you're honest, you probably often feel more trouble and fear than you feel a sense of peace. And while this will always be the case to some degree, I do believe that God wants His people to increasingly live in the peace that they have. I believe that because Jesus says in John 16, I have said these things to you so that in me you will have peace. He wants you to have peace. So let me close with just trying to help you persevere in the peace you possess. First, you need to remember that Christian peace is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's in that list in Galatians 5. So you do not possess the peace of Christ apart from the Spirit of Christ. Persevering experientially in the peace you possess is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. It's no coincidence. Jesus says He will send the Holy Spirit Immediately before he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. The gift of peace is inseparably tied to the gift of the Holy Spirit. For it is the peace of Christ and the Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. But just because it is a supernatural work doesn't mean that you are passive. And it doesn't mean you just idly sit around waiting to feel at peace. Like all of sanctification in the Christian life, God is working and you are working. Which is why Paul can say in Philippians 2, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And Paul can say, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Therefore, you must faithfully pursue by grace what you possess by grace. And since the peace you possess is the peace of Christ, it means you must persist in fixing your gaze and setting your mind upon Him. That's what Isaiah says in Isaiah 26.3. You keep Him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. The mind in perfect peace is the mind that just rests. It hovers over Christ. But this doesn't come naturally. Which is why Paul exhorts the Colossians in Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. You must actively seek and set your mind upon Christ. But again, this will not be easy because your indwelling sin will trouble you, Satan will accuse you, and the storms and sirens of this world will keep trying to distract and drown you. So why when I think of the Christian life, the image that most often comes to mind for me is Peter attempting to walk on the water. Walking on water is a supernatural act. You don't just go out and do that. And yet, Peter must walk. And he only can do this as he looks to Christ. Yet, we read so Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. He got distracted started looking at his circumstances and not at his Christ. And this is what happens to us every day. So how do you fix your eyes and set your mind upon Christ? Well, if you're hoping for some innovative idea or quick fix to magically remove all your doubts and fears, then I am about to disappoint you. I'm not going to tell you anything you probably don't already know. The Spirit's not innovative. I don't have a right to be innovative. But I will tell you what the Bible says. And I will remind you of what you hopefully already know. Paul commands the Colossians, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. That's what we want. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. How? He immediately follows up with, let the word of Christ rule dwell in you richly for the peace of Christ to rule your heart the word of Christ must dwell in your heart but he goes on teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God Paul tells the Philippians, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So do you hear that? What's the answer? You, pers- you pursue and persevere in the peace you possess by making God's wonderfully ordinary means of grace your daily diet you read you meditate on and you memorize the word you pray you participate in corporate worship and the sacraments you, Did you hear that in Colossians 3 one of the ways the peace of Christ is ruling in our hearts one of the ways the word of Christ is dwelling in our hearts is as we are singing to each other See, when we sing, we're not just singing to God. We're singing to one another. We are exhorting, we are encouraging one another through song, through teaching. Look to Christ. He's your hope. But, you say, I have prayed. I've read my Bible. I'm hearing this, so I'm at corporate worship. I participate in the sacraments I have fellowship with other Christians, and I don't feel any better. To this, I gently remind you that Jesus never said it would be easy, and he never said it would be quick. The Christian life is taking the hard path. The Christian life is taking up a cross. And this is why I frame the question as, how do you persevere in the peace that you possess? Possess. Your pursuit of peace is life long. So you pray, you read your Bible, you faithfully attend corporate worship, you participate in the sacraments, and you do it day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, until you die. Or Christ returns. There is not a point in the Christian life that you graduate past these things to to the real supernatural means of grace that you get the real answers that makes everything better. You live in this reality until the Lord calls you home. So brothers and sisters, occasional Bible reading and five-minute devotionals, while that is a good start and better than nothing, that will not sustain you through the Christian life. The Word of Christ must be dwell in you richly. You need to know the word inside and out so when you hear those accusations without a second thought, you can swing the sword of Romans 8.1. No, 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 devil, there is no condemnation for me. I'm in Christ Jesus. Attending corporate worship once or twice a month. Again, it's a good start. Will not sustain you. You need to be with other brothers and sisters. You need to hear the preaching of the word. You need to sing together. You need to pray together. You need to confess together. We're the body of Christ, not the individual limbs of Christ. You need armor. You need a shield. You need a sword to fight sin and Satan, not cotton shirts and plastic toys. And real armor and weapons takes time to forge. But thankfully, your peace is not dependent on your subjective experience. Whether your efforts are strong or weak, your peace never leaves you. For while your experience and sense of peace may be subjective, it comes and it goes, your possession of that peace is not. For your peace is not a feeling. Your peace is Christ himself. And here's the wonderful promise of the gospel, nothing can ever take Christ away from you. So Paul says, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers... Nor height, nor depth. And I love that because I think that in part means whether I'm feeling at my highest or feeling at my lowest, my condition isn't changing. Nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You cannot be separated from Christ and so you cannot be separated from your peace. Your peace is eternal. It is effectual. It is untouchable. Which means you are called to daily pursue by grace what you already possess by grace and what you will never lose because of grace. Let's pray. Our Father, we we only live by grace, which means we only live by Christ. And so I ask that you would help each of us now as we have heard your word, as we are about to participate in, in the gift of the Lord's Supper, as we sing a closing song. Would you use all of these things to direct our hearts, our minds, our eyes to Christ, that we may just rest upon him. You can only do this by the power of your spirit but we ask you to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.